Good morning, everyone. All right. Maybe it's because it's a little earlier at chapel, so you have to kind of warm up through the day. It's good to be back with you. I uh, enjoyed being uh, with those of you that were here yesterday, and uh, thank you for those that came back and for those of you who are here. For the first time yesterday, we uh, talked a little about uh, the role of Africa in the Bible in a season, a few days, over the last few days, there's been a lot of disparaging remarks about African people and the continent of Africa in the public discourse. And I just wanted to recenter that through a biblical view that out of Africa I've called my son, that Jesus went into Egypt to be called back as the Messiah. Uh, and uh, that's a very important role. But today we're gonna shift gears and we're gonna look at Jesus in action as a person of reconciliation. And the text I'm gonna pull from today is a familiar text where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well, uh, and it's in John chapter four, begin reading with verse four. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then John puts in parentheses, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Again, John comments parenthetically, he says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she's asking, why are you asking me for a drink when we don't have relations with each other? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it as did his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, all who drink this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you had five husbands and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Skipping down to verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. No one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
On this particular day, Jesus crossed a border that led him from Judea into Samaria. Most Jews would travel around Samaria when going through from Judea to Galilee. So like if you're coming in from the outside the Twin Cities and you're just driving through, you can take 494 or 694 and go around. Washington, D.C., they call that the Beltway. So you don't have to go through the cities. You can go around. That's what most folks did, most Jews. They would take a Beltway around Samaria so they didn't have to go into Samaria. This required extra time. And in fact, they had to cross the Jordan River twice, but it avoided the risk, the fears that they had of going through Samaria. But Jesus, this passage says, had to go through Samaria. Given the social differences between Jews and Samaritans and the societal borders erected to keep folks segregated, this was an unexpected meeting, Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman. Given the interpersonal inappropriateness of a man and a woman meeting in public at a well of all places and the communal borders erected to keep the lives of men and women in separate realities, this was an unusual meeting and given the moral exclusiveness meant to protect a rabbi from having any contact with a person of such questionable reputation and the ritual borders erected to keep, her, keep him holy, this was an undesirable meeting. Yet Jesus overcame fears, suspicions, any discomfort or awkwardness he might have felt and crossed that border of social difference of interpersonal appropriateness and moral exclusion and walked right into Samaria and sat down by Jacob's well and might even have smiled a bit as he watched the woman approach as she was most certainly apprehensive and anxious herself about meeting this man at the well. Let's take a quick look at these borders that Jesus crossed. And I think I forgot to tell you, but my title today is Reconciliation Requires crossing borders and creating relationships. Reconciliation requires crossing borders and creating relationships. So the first border that Jesus crossed was the border of social or socially constructed difference. He crossed the line of culture, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic class, and religion. See, Jesus was a Jew and the woman was a Samaritan. The Samaritans were a racially mixed people. Their religion was considered incomplete or inferior by the religious leaders of Judaism. The Samaritans were also an economically deprived people. The story goes that when the Israelites had been taken into captivity, left behind in the region of Samaria were poor and working class Hebrews. When the Israelites who had been taken captive returned to Palestine, they claimed that the Hebrews who had stayed behind living in Samaria had intermarried with their oppressors, with their colonizers, therefore creating Samaritans. Now the people of Samaria had another story. They claimed that they were the descendants of the patriarch Joseph and his African wife, whose offspring had become the half-tribes Ephraim and Manasseh. So we have two stories about who the Samaritans were that were competing with each other. And over the years, a rivalry Rivalry developed, tensions developed. 150 years before Jesus walked into Samaria, Jewish troops had destroyed a Samaritan temple. 
And just a few years before Jesus arrived, Samaritan revolutionaries had scattered human bones in the sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem as a way of desecrating the temple. So there was a lot of tensions, a lot of prejudice between these two groups. So the fact that Jesus crossed the boundary, the border, between Jews and Samaritans is significant. The next border I noted was the border of interpersonal appropriateness. This is the border of gender. In the first century, men and women lived very separate lives, and there were not public encounters between men and women. A man and a woman at a well, at Jacob's well. You remember Jacob's well. This is the well where Jacob met Rachel and started flirting with her. Eventually, she becomes his wife. A man and a woman at a well is trouble. A man and a woman at a well is perceived by everyone else as a flirtatious moment. I don't know where you meet here at Northwestern if you want to sort of like start talking to someone of the, the opposite. Where is it? The water fountain. <laughs> is that right? Anybody else got another spot? In the lounge. Anywhere else? Okay, well, you know what I'm talking about. A place where you can go acting like you're minding your own business, but you really want to get involved in someone else's business. Yeah, I think you know where I'm going with That's what this looked like from the outside. If you walked up in the middle of the day and saw Jesus and this Samaritan woman sitting at the well, you would say, okay, what's going on, Rabbi? The last border that he crossed was the border of moral exclusion. Typically, as a rabbi, you would keep at a distance anyone who had been declared a sinner by society. Jewish and Samaritan religious law did allow for remarriage after divorce, but at the most, three marriages were allowed for a woman. This man, woman had been married five times, and she was living with a man who was not her husband. She had trespassed the moral code. Jesus crossed that border on that day as well. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He was compelled to go through Samaria. If you read it in the King James Version, it says Jesus must needs go through Samaria. It's like giving a double emphasis uh, on the, the way he was feeling, how he had, had to go through Samaria. And when he got there, he, he developed a relationship ministry with this woman who was sitting. Now let, this is the, uh, the part I really want to spend a, uh, some time uh, looking at. The first thing that Jesus did is he engaged this woman, as we said, is he risked his status, his privilege. I mean, he's being viewed by people from the outside as, what is wrong with this man, this rabbi who's crossing all these borders? Even his disciples, when they get back, are confused they don't know. They can't even ask them what's going on. They're just in such shock to see Jesus behaving this way. So Jesus took a risk by going into Samaria and talking to the Samaritan woman. The second thing we want to see about how he developed this relationship is that it was mutual. He didn't go in. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He didn't go in like saying, I got all kinds of ways I can help you. 
He goes and says, can you give me a drink of water? Can I have a drink of water? He asks for something from her. It's mutual. He's developing a mutual relationship. So often when we meet folks and we go out in ministry, we forget about the fact that these need to be mutual relationships. At the end of the day, these are still relationships. Even though we may have a gospel we want to share, these are at the heart relationships, and relationships are built on mutuality. But as he met her and he began to share what he had to share, he didn't bring like secondhand or used goods. He gave her the best news. In fact, he gave her news that he hadn't given anyone else up to this point. He told her he was the Messiah. Jesus had not told anyone that yet. And he shared that with this woman from Samaria. But the most important part of this entering in Samaria for the understanding work of reconciliation, I believe, is that he entered into her world. So often, when we want to get to know people who um, come from a different uh, culture or ethnic group or a different experience in life, we invite them into our world where it's more comfortable for us, and we actually get to know them through our lens rather than really get to know who they are. Make this simple. If you ever, so I mean, you, you, I assume you have roommates, you get assigned roommates sometimes. You get to know your roommate through the lens of Northwestern because you're in this room. But if you actually go to their house, then you see a whole nother part of who they are. You get to know them more deeply. And that's all right. You can say right, amen, anything you want to say. It helps the preacher. Okay? He entered her world. In fact, though, what's interesting about this is that he had studied Samaritan theology. Samaritans were expecting a Messiah who would reveal all things. And when he revealed that she had been married five times and was the man she was with now was not her husband, he wasn't shaming her. He was letting her know that he was the revealer. So even before he went into her context, he had studied Samaritan culture and Samaritan theology, so he understood something about that. Uh, but then he knew her from her context. When I was in college, I went to Anderson University in Indiana as a Christian college, and uh, after I graduated, I went, uh, moved to New York City uh, to work uh, at a shelter uh, in Times Square that was uh, for homeless young people. Uh, Times Square in the middle 80s was a very challenged place, uh, much different than the Times Square of today. Uh, the Times Square then was the center of sexual trafficking in the US, high levels of poverty and crime, drug activity. Um, lived right one block from where the ball comes down. And yes, on New Year's Eve, I didn't go over and have that experience. But I moved into a Roman Catholic community because uh, this has been founded by a priest, this uh, particular shelter. And over some uh, weeks and months, I realized I'm just out of my comfort zone all the time. I grew up in the suburbs. I went to Anderson University, but now I'm in New York City, very diverse context, living in a Catholic community. I was raised in a Protestant home. 
And so I decided I need to find a little bit of comfort in the midst of all this discomfort. So one Sunday morning, I decided to go to a church of my own denomination. Didn't know my way around Manhattan. Went up north Manhattan, took the subway north uh, to 155th Street. Got off, went to a church. My church is the Church of God. That's the church that I come out of. And little did I know that I was in a region of New York called Harlem. Anyone familiar with Harlem? That's the cultural mecca for African-American people in the United States, and in the 80s, uh, very much the case. So I went to this church. It was a quiet Sunday morning. So I uh, walked in and realized that I had walked into a all-African-American church. Um, now, I had in my mind was, though, and I want to see some people like me, people who worship like me. I need a place of comfort because my comfort zone is just being stretched all of the time in this work. Um, well, I walk in. I'm greeted at the front door by the usher. The usher says, may I help you? That's an unusual greeting at a church. May I help you? Well, they had not seen a white person in their church in years. And so this was an unusual encounter. I said, well, isn't this the Church of God? She said, yes. I said I'd gone to Anderson University, which is a Church of God college. And then I was warmly welcomed into the church and taken down front and sat down in one of the front uh, pews. This worship service had already begun. Uh, what I didn't understand that I learned later was that there was two phases to the worship service in this church and a number of uh, urban uh, congregations. One's called the devotional service, which is led by lay people, and that's what was occurring. And then at some point, the pastor would come out, and then the service that's in the bulletin would begin. So I'm sitting there, and all at once it's dawning on me, I'm in a black church. And I was raised in white suburbs. I've never been in, I don't think I'd ever been in a black church up to that point. And I'm sitting down front. Um, and so some of the stereotypes that I had started to float. And before I could get too far into that thought, though, someone walked out from behind the pulpit, came up and looked at me and went like this. And I was escorted through a door into a back room that led into the pastor's office. And the pastor had heard, and I've been in the building maybe five, six minutes by now, the pastor had heard that there was an unusual visitor and so we began to have conversation, discovered that he knew my campus pastor, who was one of the few African-American campus pastors at a predominantly white Christian college in the 80s, uh, James Massing. And all at once, we had had a rapport built. And uh, Reverend Aaron was the pastor's name. He asked me, if, are you a minister? I said, well, I'm studying for the ministry. I've been a youth minister. I got licensed. I'm not ordained. And he opened his calendar and said, can you preach for me two weeks from today? <laughs> I've only been there like 10 minutes by now in the building. And he's already asking me to preach. And I think I had preached maybe five, six, seven sermons in my life at that point. I said, okay. And um, 
escorted me out. He escorted me onto the platform, sit next to him. That was the tradition. All the ministers sat on the platform. And uh, later had to bring greetings to the congregation and then left. I had to work the following Sunday. Now I had a decision. Do I go back and preach or I get myself out of here because I felt uncomfortable? I went back and preached. I had to go back. Had to go back to preach. And that developed a relationship, of course, across of a year uh, with this congregation. Uh, and I was taught from the inside of an African-American church about how African-American congregations operate, about black culture, black history. I mean, I've been doing some reading, too. Like Jesus, I've been doing some reading. But the real transformation and preparation for this work began in that congregation as they nurtured me and loved me. Even on Sundays when I'd preach, you know, I, uh, my, the preaching style in that congregation was different than the one I'd been raised in. And so I was used to a monologue where you just talk and that's what you do. This was a dialogue preaching style. So you had to slow down a little bit, allow for response, and people were real kind. You know, they'd say things like, help them, Lord. Help them, Lord. And they loved me into the ability to preach in their church. And Lord helped me. They helped me. Pastor helped me. And by the end of that year in New York, the end of that year in New York, an interesting thing had happened. I had been uh, journaling. And when I would journal, I would say, start at the church, I went to a black church today. Enjoyed the black music, loved the black preaching, stayed for lunch, probably said liked the black food. Um, somewhere in the course of that year, that changed. I went to church this morning, enjoyed the worship, enjoyed the preaching, enjoyed the fellowship at the meal. It had become my church. I had relaxed. What used to be a stretch in my comfort zone was now comfortable. I was comfortable being there. I was a part of the church. I was a son of the church. That's what happens when you put yourself and you learn from the inside out, is you begin to get comfortable. And the interesting thing is, the more you keep consistently stretching your comfort zone, the more you become comfortable. Crossing borders is the call of all of us as Christians. And creating relationships is how we have a chance to share who we are and who this Jesus is that we know. And it helps us grow and build a, a, a more united community. To do that, you have to be willing to cross all kinds of borders. And when you get in the context of folks, you've got to first be willing to risk your reputation, risk your friendships, risk who you know, because not everyone's gonna understand what you're doing. Second, it's gotta be mutual. You gotta know that you're gonna receive something in that process. In fact, if it's real, you will be transformed by the experience. And three, you gotta get to know folks from their context. So as I close, Northwestern has some diversity, but this is really a white place. 
This is a white place. Bethel was a white place. I didn't say anything I didn't say over there. So folks of color come in here and they experience a white place. You get to know them, maybe be friends with folks of color, but you know them within the context of a white place. I challenge you to go out of Northwestern and get to know people in their family places, in their context, in their cultural places. And there are places in the Twin Cities where you can do that. In fact, because the church is segregated, just about every Sunday you can go to a church of a different race or culture. But there's also, like there's, a, there's like malls. There's a Hmong mall. There's a Somali mall. There's all kinds of Latino places around. You can go and actually feel like you're in a different country right here in the Twin Cities. I encourage you to experience that but if you're friends with someone here who's of different race and culture, figure out how to get an invitation home and get to know folks from their context. That is reconciliation. Let's pray. God, thank you for the call to reconciliation. We're all, as 2 Corinthians says, called to be ministers of reconciliation. Help us to have the courage and the confidence to step into this call and to be changed by this call. In your name we pray.